All right, at 21, we start to get these proverbs that really invite reflection. Because you can find ways in which they're true, and ways in which they're not true, and ways in which they're yet true again. So, 21, disaster pursues sinners, but the righteous are rewarded with good. What way would you find that true? Disaster pursues sinners. Maybe even at the most superficial level, if that's helpful. Disaster pursues sinners, but the righteous are rewarded with good. Yeah? Um, the last few verses that you read, it doesn't seem like hard for the, for the righteous. Mm-hmm. Like the apostles, they suffer the poverty, uh, right. you know, so you've already jumped to stage two, which is, how is this not true? How does this seem to be not true? So let me I'll, I'll give an example of a way in which this is superficially true. It's the same way that you want your kids or your grandkids to run with a good group of folks. Because if they're running with a bunch of sinners, is that going to work out well for them? No. Disaster comes to those who are living their lives in uh, a disastrous yeah, in a disastrous way. That's a great way of putting it. Mm-hmm. Exactly so. So you can, I mean, you can even see this when you're just online looking at a video, and you've got somebody who's tattooed from head to toe, and they're drinking too much, and they're out at two a.m. And you just go, nothing good's going to come from this. All right. So at a superficial level, and I don't mean superficial as unimportant. I just mean at a very basic observational level. Frankly, this is just kind of even natural observation. I'm not entirely sure you need the Holy Spirit to make this judgment. You can look at people who set upon a sinful course, and you can go, I don't want anything to do with that. It looks like a train wreck's going to happen any moment. Whereas the flip side of that, then, would be the righteous are rewarded with good. You've got straight-A kiddos following other straight-A kiddos, and they're going through, and Things seem to go generally better for them. They don't end up getting knocked out in the middle of the street at 2 a.m. on a Saturday night. They're in bed, so they can be in church in the next morning. Or even just more superficially, they're in bed so they can wake up and do something more fruitful for them and for their growth as human beings the next morning. Okay, so that would be a way in which, temporally, this is true at a very rudimentary level. Now, as was brought up a minute ago, in what ways is this, does this not seem to be true? Well, the example brought up, and I think it's exactly right, is, well, what about the apostles? What about the martyrs in the church? Are the righteous, in fact, rewarded with good? Very frequently, the righteous, especially if we're viewing here Christians, which I think is the primary sense in which the righteous as a title is used in Proverbs, the righteous very often end up persecuted, imprisoned, silenced, hated, despised, exiled, maybe even put to death. Whereas sinners, does disaster seem to pursue them? Seems like the wicked just keep on getting blessed. So that's a secondary reflection that's worth considering. We've considered that at multiple points already in the Proverbs, so I won't belabor that. But the consideration... um, thoroughgoing in the scriptures, why do the wicked prosper? 
Why do they live to long age? Why does it seem like they have lives of ease? All right, that's the secondary kind of reflection. What's the, uh, if we have an eternal kind of ultimate view of this proverb, where does that reflection lead? Yeah. I would say, and it's a deeper way of looking at it, is the fact that the saved person, the Christian, knows of his future and knows where he's going. And the unsaved evil person, and they don't have to even be an evil person, they're just outside of Christ, is always questioning or searching, searching, and that's got to be an insecurity that most of us wouldn't want to deal with. Great point. I think I think you just really nailed that. So, one who has rejected Christ and stands on his own before the judgment seat of God has a constant sense, or should have a constant sense of dread over death. And I think that that's more common than we think, because look at how the entire world shut down lest, I forget what minuscule percentage of it, of us that actually died because of COVID, we absolutely can't risk any amount of death whatsoever. Because why? There's nothing else. This life is all I have, there's nothing else. Or, maybe even more honestly, a fearful sense of impending judgment that's being suppressed in a person. Because there's a whole heck of a lot of evidence that we are created and that we are accountable for this life. And if you spend your whole life suppressing that, then all of a sudden staying alive becomes the ultimate and only goal. So the sinner has disaster constantly pursuing him. And then in the ultimate point, as it says, disaster pursues the sinner and overtakes the sinner. And the righteous judgment of God and the condemnation to eternal hell. Okay, the righteous, like mainly the saints, the holy ones, imputed righteous for the sake of Christ, are rewarded with good. Now, that's true in an ultimate sense, even as we go through this life. How so? Because we recognize that the blessings we receive, the obvious blessings we receive, our blessings come from God, and the crosses we receive. Simultaneously, blessings come from God. We're going to get to that in a few Proverbs. And then these, this cross that he lays upon us, present tense, is ultimately for our good and for our glory. And he rewards his own works within us. So the righteous are rewarded with good, the good of the life of Christ. So I think that that's, your comment is exactly right, and that's probably the third ultimate sense of the meditation on this problem. Anything else you want to add? Okay, on to the next. A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children, but the sinner's wealth is laid out for the righteous. All right, let's think about this at the baseline temporal level. A good man is living not just for himself, not just for his children, but for his children's children. It's a view toward others, 
and it's a view toward leaving them an inheritance, so obviously something upon which they can base their lives. Now, in a less wicked time, this was much more possible. And in fact, many of us are where we are today, in part because we had grandparents and great-grandparents who lived a certain way, worked a certain way, saved a certain way, and were able to give a step up to their children, and likewise the next generation a step up to their children, and so on. And that is good and right and the way that God would have the temporal order work. Again, at this kind of first temporal level, the second part of the proverb, but the sinner's wealth is laid up for the righteous. Whatever the sinner has, because he doesn't have a view toward anything other than himself in his own moment, whatever he has perishes with him and is dispersed unto others. And indeed, God will use that to reward those who are looking to leave an inheritance to their children and children's children. Okay, we can obviously see ways in which, at the secondary reflection, at the secondary level of reflection, ways in which this isn't necessarily true. Lots of good men are unable to leave an inheritance to their children, or their inheritance would be something much more psychological, an outlook on life, whether you have much or whether you have little or hey, I don't have much to give you, but everything I've, I have, I've already given you. I've tried to write my character into your heart. And I think men do this uh, very much with their sons, as is fitting, because they'll be the heads of their households. And I think one of the most central and important messages that fathers can give to their sons, just even on a base, basic psychological level, is not to give up. Just not to give up into despair. As a male, you're born into the world, and of course, you never want to lose. And as much as you can, you don't really lose. But a key part of masculinity is losing and getting back up again. And losing and getting back up again. The point of God's instruction toward masculinity is not that you always win, but that you have a dauntless spirit, that you never concede, that you never give up, that you never fall into self-pity and despair. Right? So that's we can consider that kind of existing between worlds, if you will, because it has its tangents in a temporal place and in a spiritual place or eternal place. That might be the inheritance that's passed on, whereas... Again, for a sinner, his wealth isn't transmitted except what he, even what he has is lost and then the Lord bequeaths more to the righteous. Okay, how might we consider this then in an eternal sort of way? A good man, in this case we'd say a saint, leaves an inheritance to his children's children. Because if you raise up a child in the way he should go, he will not depart from it. And, God willing, he'll raise up his child in the way he should go, and he won't depart from it. And so you have an intentional...
bequeathing of the one true faith down through the lines. That would be the ultimate sense of a good man leaving his inheritance to his children's children. And you see examples of this in the scriptures, don't you? You see patriarchs who succeed at this and patriarchs who fail at this for one reason or another. And the sinner's wealth, whatever that is, again, a sinner's, sinner's wealth, probably in this ultimate view, you'd say something is just mere temporal wealth, is laid up and added unto the righteous. You know, in this, in this sense, that he who gave his only begotten son, his beloved son, how will he not also give you all things? In this sense, we as Christians already have the whole wor- world, the heavens and the earth and all its fullness, It's just on loan to others temporarily for their use, good or ill. But in the end, when everything's all evil is swept away and the new heavens and the new earth are cleansed, purified, everything becomes ours, even what was once theirs. All right, so there is some some, uh, third aspect, as we're calling it here, third level. Interpretation. All right, any thoughts on that? There's one in the back. Uh, are we running a microphone? I guess not. <laughs> hey, speak up and I'll try to. Uh... Is there no microphone? There's not. There's one on the table right here. Well, one thing that's crossing me is the second aspect. Yeah. Right, you were saying this is an aspect in which the proverb isn't true. Sure. But I think even that, we have to say the proverb isn't always. That's exactly what I mean. Yeah. Yeah. Because it, you know, take for example a society where the good always or the evil always prosper. Yeah. Well, there is there's there are societies in the world like that, like Somalia. Mm-hmm. Right. And even there, the evil are doing worse than they would do in a well-ordered society. Sure. You know, so by and large, if the good doesn't prosper, nobody does. Uh huh. Yep. Yep. I think that's right. I think that's a great reflection. Yeah. Great reflection. And I, and I take that as a friendly a, amendment, too. It would be better to say, um, you know, ways in which this proverb isn't always true. Yeah. And that, that's many of the proverbs, if not all of them, <laughs> to one degree or another, have this aspect that you're meant, it's an assertion, and you're meant to chew on it, reflect on it, find ways in which it's true, ways in which it might not be true. There's wisdom in that entire process of engaging with, the proverb as a general assertion. Thank you. Yes, please. I recently ran across a painting by Van Gogh. I love Van Gogh. But it was a painting I had never seen before. So I looked up, you know, what the history of this painting was and discovered that Van Gogh painted it in 1889. He never received recognition for his work. Mm-hmm. And a lot of impressionists didn't. It was considered outrageous artwork. Mm-hmm. But he committed suicide the next year. Mm-hmm. Never saw the wonders of his work recognized. Mm. Yeah. That's unfortunate. So, yeah. That, that would be a very poignant example of a sinner's wealth is laid up for the righteous. 
Okay, let's move on. So the fallow ground, that is, as I understand it, ground that's set aside so it can become fertile again. The fallow ground of the poor would yield much food, but it is swept away through injustice. Now this is just a fantastic proverb that he puts next to here because it directly challenges what's even what's come before, doesn't it? That a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. Here he says the fallow ground of the poor would yield much food, but it is swept away through injustice. So here's a proverb indicating that it's not just the simple equation of if you work hard, you'll be prosperous. Because there's an ingredient called wickedness that comes and often, more often than not, subverts all of that. So that if a good, industrious, hardworking man, though he was poor, the fallow ground, whatever it is that the Lord has provided unto him would be more than enough. Indeed, there would be much food. But it's swept away through injustice, through those who have power or cunning and use wickedness to take away or limit or undercut that productivity. How much are we being taxed right now? What's the percentage? So that's an example of you work really hard and what is it? Between 30 and 40% of your money is gone. That's undercutting your productivity. It's undercutting. And it's just an example of that. Okay, so that would be easy. What would be another way? I mean, inflation. Inflation functions to the poor as theft. Because what can you do about it? Your money's sitting there. It represents stored hours of labor. And all of a sudden, whereas $2 could buy you a loaf of bread, now it's $5. Your money got emptied out, the value got stolen away from you, and you did nothing other than continue to work hard and continue to save. So these are examples of the way wickedness consumes the world and takes away the good that God gives, such that even a poor person, uh, through industriousness, could have much food. It's swept away through injustice. All right, no doubt you could add your own examples. Anyone want to? Anyone have any thoughts? Yeah, please. I, I was just going to ask about the poor in spirit. I've heard you say things like that can be a blessing if you find yourself poor in spirit. And, mm-hmm. But that can be swept away, that fertile ground of you know, pain and wanting to go towards Christ. But mm-hmm. Yeah, the the poverty of spirit is where one realizes that in and of himself, spiritually speaking, you just have nothing to offer God. It's all tainted at best. I mean, but at worst, it's not even there. There's just nothing. And you realize, it's, it's to me, it's a very analogous to that statement of Luther, we are all beggars. 
So spiritually speaking, all that we have comes from God. And it's a, it's a realization that whether he's given you, I mean, whatever he's given you in terms of spiritual gifts, in terms of spiritual value, you it's not yours in and of itself. It's not like you produced it or are it. These are gifts that come from him. And so everything we have and are, we receive. So we're completely destitute of spirit. We have nothing to offer God. All right, so there, there's a reflection on the destitution of spirit. A, so Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount says, blessed are the poor in spirit. When he's preaching the Sermon on the, on the Plain, he simply says, blessed are the poor. This is a thoroughgoing motif in the scriptures, and you just kind of have to get over it because it's the teaching of the scriptures. And it's so thoroughgoing that if you have an open mind, you'll start to see it everywhere. <coughs> Excuse me. And it's a bias against the rich and for the poor. How so? Because the rich are often rich precisely because they serve mammon and not God. The poor are often poor because they serve God and not mammon, but it's also an invitation to the poor who have suffered the injustice of the leaders and rulers and important people of the world who are financially down, out, and outcast to come receive even greater eternal riches from Christ. So the gospel goes out in this sense primarily to the poor, not to the rich. You even see that sentiment in... um, Mary's Magnificat. The rich are sent empty away, while the poor and lowly are exalted. Thoroughgoing biblical motif. Uh, Along with the preaching of Jesus, that it's easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. I mean, I think all of this is straight proof and warning that wealth isn't the blessing we all think it is. Now, are there rich Christians? Yeah, of course. There's even rich Christians in the Bible. Whether they're rich or not, they're gener- there's a generous group of women who largely fund Jesus' ministry and the ministry of his disciples. There is Joseph of Arimathea, who has the tomb. And, uh, there's Nicodemus seems to be a man of some means as well. And then later on, we hear even in Acts that there are courtiers of inheritance court who have become Christians. So there are powerful and wealthy people who become Christians, but that's despite their power and wealth. Power and wealth does nothing to further you along your path to the kingdom of God. So this warning of wealth, you cannot serve God and mammon. You're going to choose one or the other. And so I think that that's then how those two kind of tie in, the poor in spirit and the plain old poor, both being called blessed by Jesus because you're seeing things as they really are and you're seeing things uh, objectively. He is the true wealth. Okay, so let's just move on then to 24. Whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. All right, the parent's favorite proverb. But it's true, isn't it? And whether that's uh, temporal parenting, 
or whether it's spiritual parenting. The New Testament said God disciplines says that God disciplines us because he loves us. And that there's not any who are his sons whom he does not discipline. So that's the other thing where you can take pains and challenges and difficulties and suffer difficulties and sufferings in your life and you as a Christian can say these aren't signs that God hates me, these are signs that God loves me. These are signs of his fatherly discipline. I needed to learn that lesson. I'm learning it still, painful as it has been. I would never wish the pain, but I'm thankful for the lesson. And I will be eternally grateful for the lesson. Sometimes that happens in our natural families, you know, as, as uh, kiddos are growing up, they come to despise the discipline of their parents. It doesn't have to be that way. Wise children, particularly wise children maybe in our age, won't. But many often do. Only to come around either in their late teens, early 20s, when they've been on their own for a while, or when they have their own children, only to come around and realize the wisdom. And sometimes you'll even get this phenomenon where kids will come back to parents and say, I'm sorry I was wretched during my teenage years. Thank you for disciplining me. Thank you for saying no. I see how much pain and suffering now you saved me from then, even though I was rebelling against it. Okay, so there's this idea, and it flies in the face of what seems to be superficially true. What seems to be superficially true is, if you love your children, why would you ever discipline them? Why would you ever raise your voice? Why would you ever ground them? Why would you ever spank them? Why would you ever do any of these things? Don't you love them? Isn't that kind of the sugary, saccharine love of the world? We just have to accept everyone and affirm everyone and never say anything naughty to anyone and unless they're white and male. But you see the corruption and the saccharine nature of the world's love. And it's not true love at all, because all it does is affirms people in their wickedness. So true love, God's love, the love of godly parents for their children, is a love that is able to say no. And isn't that, I, I find that to be, in a, very, in a very simple way, maybe the most important thing that our spiritual fathers can say to us, that our earthly fathers can say to us, that the church can speak to us. In this day and age where everything is yes, and affirmation, and acceptance, and whatever you want, is to be able to say no, because it's not good for you. It's not good for you now, and it certainly won't be good for you down the road. Because I love you, because we love you. (coughs) And there will be a consequence if you try to go past that. Because why? Because we hate you? No, precisely because we love you and want what's best for you, and we want to protect you now and down the road. So a lot of this has to do also with the, the way in which God or, orders the world according to hierarchies, usually those of the higher rungs of the hierarchy, it's particularly true in the family, mothers and fathers, a lot of their wisdom comes from their experience. So parents can flat out see more and understand more than their children. It doesn't matter if their chil- children have a 200 IQ. It doesn't matter if they're off the charts. It doesn't matter if 
They have perfect SAT, ACT scores. They don't have, it's like the parents are sitting on a hill simply on account of the years that they've endured and they can see further than the child that even though he can run up and down the hill faster, he's not high enough up to be able to see what they see. So that's where, you know, no matter how intelligent you are as a young person or as an adult, you want to be humble enough to listen to those who have, by God's ordering, a greater view and a more distant view of things. So, you know, again, that kind of harkens back to what we talked about in an earlier proverb, the importance of listening to wise Christian, wise Christian counsel from the past. Because they can see things that maybe we can't see. And they understood things that maybe we can't understand. All right, so, yeah, just some free-form meditation on whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. You even get this, by the way, it's kind of a minor reflection, but it's there. It's puzzling at first blush, but it's not when you think about it in, the, in these terms, in this context. There's even this idea of our, Lord, of our Lord Jesus as the Son of God receiving discipline, not because he needed it per se, but because that's simply the role of a son. So you remember like that odd language of he learned obedience, And you go, well, he was already obedient. There's one thing to be obedient in principle. There's another thing to be obedient and carry that obedience out despite the consequence. The difference between those two could very easily be articulated as learning obedience. So even Jesus, as the beloved son of the Father and sinless, is subject to suffering. And that suffering is ultimately, even for him, good. That's why he's utterly faithful unto God, unto the end. He doesn't despise God or reject God or think God must not love me because I'm suffering so. Rather, even in the cry of dereliction at that peak, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But why have you forsaken me comes from a place that you are nonetheless my God. All right, so even when we contemplate uh, Christ, we see how true this is, how profoundly true this is. All right, 25, the righteous has enough to satisfy his appetite, but the belly of the wicked suffers want. So I think if we were to kind of use our three levels we've been using, at a first level, I I would say that this is generally true that our overwhelming homelessness problem in the world, especially in our country, could be satisfied if people simply wanted to live a lifestyle other than sleeping on the side of the road and doing drugs all day long. You may may have seen... um, You may have seen a a video that someone shot where they came up and had this exchange with a homeless man. I can't remember which city it was. And he's literally like, why would I leave? This is how I want to live. I'm not going to a shelter. I'm not going to get help. Help for what? I want to sit 
here on the side of the road while you are working. There you are in your car that you have to work to pay for, that you have to work to fuel, that you have to work to insure. Now, he didn't go into that level of detail, but that's his, pers that's his perspective. And I'm going to sit here on my lawn chair and wait for the next high. So I think even at a baseline sense, you, a, a temporal sense, you can see that um, the belly of the wicked suffers want, that is, many of the wicked choose their lot in life. Just full on choose it. And what they lack, they choose. They choose to go a little hungry or, yeah, I'd rather, I'd rather eat out of a dumpster than get a real job, be an upstanding member of society. So I think this is a concrete application of this. Whereas the righteous, if you just simply want to get up and be a human being and get on your feet and do your job and work your hours and make a living, you can. Although maybe I'd add the giant asterisk to that that it's harder now than ever. And it's not simply when we look at our young people, especially our young males, and they look at the task as being dauntless to get a job where they can get a house, where they can have a life, we shouldn't scoff at that because I would say objectively it's the case that the upcoming generations have it harder than any other generation. It was not long ago that you actually could work. You could remember these days? Some of you might. You could just graduate high school or not even. My, I had a grandpa who didn't graduate high school. He was like, whatever, I'm going to go work. And he was able to work without a high school diploma and grandma never worked. Grandma had children. And on that salary alone, whatever it was that he found to do, and upward mobility as you just continue on with a job which barely exists anymore in this day and age, he was able to provide house, acreage, farm, vacations. Can you do that today? What do you, can you do that today with an undergrad degree? I don't know. It's a, it's a real mess. So we have to especially recognize what our young people are up against today, where frequently they're looking at the prospect of, you know, first of all, for a variety of reasons, they don't want to get married until they're in their 30s, and that's what society wants for them. It's disastrous for the family. It's disastrous for their well-being. But then along with that, you're going, okay, so these two salaries now are barely going to be enough to make it. We think, oh, that's just California. No, increasingly, that's anywhere. It's anywhere other than living in a trailer somewhere in the middle of nowhere, scraping by. And even then, that's not a guarantee. All right, so we want to be real sympathetic toward the younger generations because we have not created and we're not leaving a system for them that is actually conducive to if you just work hard, you're going to make it. I had a comment slash question about, um, you're talking about the, uh, this, this verse talking about the belly of the wicked suffers and want. And your comments on homelessness, I totally agree with. I just, one thing I was thinking about. Yeah, please. With, with the drugs and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. To me, it seems like someone like that is often addicted. 
So that's a physiological, that's a real thing that they may or may not be able to control. And I look at almost like having, you know, like a demon, just like, you know, Jesus was, you know, exercising demons. Is that realistic or is that me, me being too compassionate on that person? Like, hey, you need to, you know, get going or like, no, you're physically addicted with a demon and what do you do? I, I struggle with this. Yeah, yeah. And I agree with a lot of the things you're saying. I'm like, yeah, I'd like to have beachfront property and live in a tent. That's awesome. <laughs> but you know, I can't afford it. Yeah. So, so I, I agree with you, but I, just, I struggle with the other end of it too. Like, hey, you know, I. And well, and well, we should. I take your comments as a friendly amendment. Uh, yeah, if we're going to talk about the question more thoroughly, uh, we do find those that are suffering from uh, addiction, but probably more than that, mental illness. You've probably seen statistics where, precisely as we started shutting down mental health care centers, sanatoriums, homelessness started skyrocketing. So there is a great deal of mental disorder. And don't misunderstand me to say we shouldn't be compassionate towards the poor either, that we should, just in balance. So I think the world right now is just all the poor are there because they're oppressed by a systematically unjust nation economy. You know, this, this is the narrative we're told. And when that's the narrative you're told, you have to look at it and be willing to say, yeah, that's just not true, at least for a large portion of them, right? A large portion of them are choosing it. Now, that's not, but again, we can come back with the other side and say we need to have compassion and there are systemic issues that we can address and that kind of thing. So yeah, it's a complicated thing. and I think your perspective's right on. I sympathize. Okay, I think Alice was first. Then. Well, uh, I was, I was downtown when we had the shelter in the tents. And I approached these two guys. They were across from the Ninny studio. And I said, they were asking me for money. I said, why don't you go to the center that we set up? Mm-hmm. And they said, oh, we got out of there. They won't let us drink. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking you can apply this to that if you love your son, you'll discipline him. Mm-hmm. Because as a society, I've been told I have no compassion for the homeless. Mm-hmm. I do, but I don't think we're going down the right way. We need to discipline. We have laws that say you can't stay on the street. We have laws that say you can't have drunkenness in public and certainly drug addiction in public. Yeah, yeah. And what we've said is something. We're so sorry. And that's misplaced. Yeah, you right. Know, if we could get them off drugs physically, just say you have to do this and yeah. put them to work, I think it would be solved. Yeah. But it isn't a roof over your head because they'll do the same thing if that shelter. Right, right. And certainly if they're supported in that because they won't have the pride. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. So yeah, it's a, and thank you for bringing that up. It is, if we're just talking about homelessness per se, it's a complicated issue. And I've heard wonderful comments to that regard, and I appreciate the conversation. I think in terms of fitting an example of the wicked, the belly of the wicked suffers want. There's just often when you're lazy, conniving, hanging out with thieves, trying to live off of ill-gotten gains, uh, not desiring to work at all, but to just live off of the work of others. Those are the kinds of wicked things that then cause you to suffer want. So a general application and truth there. Whereas the righteous man, and again, it's satisfy his appetite. And that's part of the miracle of God's giving of daily bread, 
is whether it's a good year or a bad year, you know, you're working, you're trying to make ends meet, you generally speaking have enough to satisfy yourself. It may not be all you want, you may not be able to do the things you want for you or for your children or whatever the case may be, but it's enough to satisfy. So I think these are generally true on the temporal level. Of course, there are ways in which it's not true. I mean, sometimes the righteous, on account of the wickedness of others, like Naboth has his vineyard stolen away from him. Um, the rich man refuses to give Lazarus anything. So there are ways that we can contemplate um, the times in which this isn't true. There was a hand in the back. I just remembered. Alex Okay. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And a hand up front here. Yes. I was just going to say that maybe this first line, the righteous has enough to satisfy his appetite, is actually an encouragement from the Lord to us mm-hmm. as his people to remind us that, look, I'm giving you everything you need. Give us this day our daily bread. I'm giving you everything mm-hmm. that you need mm-hmm. to satisfy your appetite, reminding us that contentment is, you know, being in Christ and understanding that no matter what it is we face, Mm -hmm. we are in Christ and we can suffer one and still be content. We can have it all and Mm -hmm. be content because I can do all things through Christ. Right. If you understand that verse correctly, with regard to contentment, that is a source of encouragement. So the righteous has enough in Christ. You have enough to satisfy your appetite. Done. Period. Excellent. Absolutely. That gets us to kind of that third level reading, and I'll, I'll look at that in just one second. Did you have a... I was just going to say, when you were describing the scenario of the homeless person's mindset, I was thinking about the disordered nature of her thoughts about freedom. So he's perceiving that he's so free, yeah. but in fact he's enslaved by his addiction, whereas freedom in Christ is a different kind of freedom that gives different kinds mm-hmm. of Absolutely. Absolutely. And you can see the overindulgent society that permits that guy a place on the streets. I mean, it should be like, are you mentally ill? Here's the sanatorium. Are you lazy? Here's your island. Away from our streets so you can't defecate on them. And you can go be lazy on your island and either live or not. You know, that would be a kind of love on the part of the paternal government to say, we're we're assessing you, here's what you need. But you're not going to be allowed to freeload on the streets and defecate everywhere and drag down productive society, creating a dangerous place for innocent people just trying to make a life. All right, so with our remaining time then, just a spiritual take, or that kind of third-level take, as we've been as we've been looking at it. The righteous has enough to satisfy his appetite. Is fulfilled in seek ye first the kingdom of God, and all these other things will be added to you. The primary concern of a Christian is not what you wear, what you eat, because the body's more than clothing, and the life is more than food. The soul is more than food. So. These things are fulfilled ultimately in Christ. And as we pursue Christ, he will grant us what we need when we need it. And then likewise, the belly of the wicked suffers want. I think here you can take in a kind of an ultimate and spiritual sense as well, that even the wicked who has the whole world, he's gained the whole world, what has he lost? 
is soul. And what does it profit to gain the whole world and lose your soul? That's the rhetorical question posed by our Lord, our Lord's parable. So the belly of the wicked, even though it might be absolutely stuffed to the brim with the finest of earthly foods, is nonetheless left unsatisfied. He suffers want. He suffers an unmet desire. And that has to do with, of course, the fact that we're created not for food and clothing or temporal stuff. We're created for God. And only insofar as we have him are we fulfilled. And the ultimate, I mean, the the heaven of heaven isn't just, oh, it's a nice, pretty place. The heaven of heaven is being united and beholding and seeing and having the one for whom we were made, which is none other than God himself. So we as his creatures were not made to be fulfilled by other creatures. We were made to be fulfilled by our creator. And so even if you have all the wealth of the world, you've gained the whole world but forfeited your soul, you've got nothing but a gaping God-sized hole right in the middle of your heart. All right, that takes us to the end of 13. Next week we'll look at 14. And again, chapter 14 is sort of, there are three parts of this. A wise son, wise ways to live, and 14 is the second part. The Lord be with you. Amen.